When you become a widow, the heartache can be overwhelming. You feel lost, you feel broken, you feel alone, and sometimes you feel like the pain will never go away. I believe that every widow has the capacity to endure, the power to overcome, and the determination to create a new life filled with meaning and purpose. That's why I wanted to create a show called Widow 180. People tell me they come here for the positivity. They listen to Widow 180, the podcast, to be inspired. They come to Widow 180 to be reminded that they have options, that the pain of loss is not a life sentence. Widow 180 is about turning tragedy, loss, and fear into strength, creativity, and a new passion for life. My mission each week is to arm you with these powerful stories of transformation and knowledge so that you can navigate life after loss. I'm Jen Zwink. I'm so glad you're listening. Let's get to the episode. Hello, Widow 180 podcast listeners. I am so excited about my guest today, Kim Murray, because I've been reading her blog for quite some time now, and I love it, and I think it's wonderful, and I think you should all go check it out immediately. It's called Widow 411. So Widow 411, go and read it. It's such a fantastic resource for widows. And now she has this other phenomenal resource for everyone, and it's called the ultimate widow survival guide. Is that correct? Yes. The ultimate survival guide for widows. Okay. And she's going to tell us all about it. So good morning, Kim. Good morning. And thanks for being here today to share your story. Um, so I wanted to, uh, well, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I just, I just wanted to let you know, I've really been enjoying listening to your podcast. I oh, think you're, you. You know, your guests are really inspirational and I take walks sometimes during the day. So I've been listening a lot to the guests on your podcast too. And I really appreciate that you're providing this resource for widows as well. I think that's really important. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. And I want to go over the name of your book again, because I totally botched it. That's okay. Let's, let's start with that. <laughs> that's okay. It's called the ultimate survival guide for widows. The ultimate survival guide yeah. for widows. Yeah. And it really is. It's completely amazing. And you're going to tell us all about it. But I do want to start with your story of Mark okay. and what happened with Mark. So let's, we'll go ahead and start there. Okay. So my husband, Mark, um, so this was back in 2013. And um, he had been home for, you know, a couple of days, not feeling well. We thought he had the flu. He was basically sick. I mean, he just didn't feel well and he was in bed for a few days. And I didn't really know what was going on. And he said he would just rest and, you know, get better, but he was in bed for like four days. And we thought, well, something is, maybe it's more than the flu. We just didn't know. Um, he was kind of lethargic and he thought, um, he could just sleep it off. So he was home for about four days. And then on Valentine's that day, that year, so 2013 Valentine's day, I had gotten up and put the kids on the bus. And when I came back from getting them on the bus and came in the house, Mark was sitting in the chair in our living room and he was just sobbing. He was crying. And he said, um, I think something's terribly wrong. And I said, okay, what, you know, what's wrong? And he had told me he tried to fill out a Valentine's day card for me and write his name on the card. And he couldn't write his name. And I said, what do you mean you couldn't write your name? What does that mean? So he showed me the card, the Valentine's day card and where his name should have been. 
was a bunch of squiggly lines. So he literally could not write his name and he's in the chair crying. And I'm thinking, this is not good. No, this is not good. So what we thought was, you know, the flu was obviously something more, but that Valentine's day card, I immediately got on the phone with the doctor and I was like, we need to come in right now. So I called his family doctor. I didn't know who to call, right. You know, who other than the family doctor. So the nurse that probably heard my urgency in my voice. So they got us in that morning. So I drove Mark to his doctor and this is his family doctor for like 20 years. And, um, we got in there and he just basically took one look at Mark and said, you need to go to the emergency room. And he thought maybe he had meningitis. He was, he had headaches, he had a fever. Um, he was confused. He, he's thinking meningitis. So he said, do not stay here, go straight to the emergency room. So we did. So as we're going to the emergency room, we're talking about meningitis and what does that mean? And what is the prognosis? And I have no idea. So we drive over to the hospital where his doctor asks us to go and check into the ER. So the nurse that checked us in was not very nice. I mean, she was just not, you know, couldn't be bothered with us. Here comes the guy in the ER with a headache. And it was almost like, you know, she wasn't that concerned about it. So we check him in and Everybody who's been to the ER knows how long it takes to get assigned a room. So we're waiting for quite a long time. And they finally get him into a room and they take him away for a CAT scan. So they come back from, he comes back from the CAT scan. All of a sudden this nurse that was not very nice to us before, couldn't be bothered with Mark, comes back into our room and her whole demeanor changed. Her whole entire attitude has changed. She's now very nice, very pleasant. Can I get you anything? Can I do anything for you? And we're kind of looking at each other like, what's the change in her attitude? But the weirdest part of when she came back in that room was that she started putting a padded bumper around Mark's hospital bed, a padded bumper. And we're again thinking, oh my God, this is, this is weird. This is not right. Yeah. So we knew something was bad. So then the doctor came into the room and he said, I need, you know, come into my office. So we put Mark in a wheelchair and he wheels us into his office And he said, these exact words, I'm not, like, I'll never forget it. He said, Mark, you have a glioblastoma brain tumor. You have 12 to 15 months to live. And you need to treat each day going forward as a gift. Those were his words. Oh, my God. So. Yeah. We don't know what glioblastoma is. No. We've never heard of it. I I mean, you know, he was like he was speaking gibberish. Like, I don't even know what that means. But he very clearly said, um, you know, you have this tumor and you have 12 to 15 months to live. So we're confused. We don't know what that means. And, um, you know, we're like, what can, can you say? Can well, you the, way that he, the way that he said it, too. It's kind of like. It was, it was very matter of fact. And at, in the moment, you're thinking to yourself, what is wrong with this? Like, why would he be so. Matter of fact. Matter of fact. It is, you know looking back on it, I understand he's a neurosurgeon at this hospital. You probably have seen glioblastoma before. It's like, he's, he's just saying you need to treat each day going forward as a gift because you don't have much time left. So I don't think he wanted to beat around the bush. He wanted to be clear about that fact. So, but like, what does that mean? I didn't understand that. What does that mean? And the doctor said, there's no cure for glioblastoma. This tumor will kill you. So, okay. That's, that was how we got the news. So we're at this hospital. They want to schedule surgery immediately. Um, My mind is in overdrive now. I'm just, I have no idea, 
you know, what to do next. So I call my neighbor who's a nurse and I tell her what's going on. And she very calmly said to me, Kim, you need to transfer Mark to the University of Michigan. So we're about 45 minutes from the U of M hospital where I live here. And um, we knew, you know, he had to have surgery, but she said, you need to get him to U of M as fast as you can. So basically the next day I went into the hospital, started the transfer procedures and we got him over to U of M. So of course they do second opinion. Yes, it's glioblastoma. There's no, there's no doubt about this. And um, they want to schedule surgery too. So he has maybe three or four days before surgery over there at U of M and they are giving him steroids to reduce the swelling in his brain and, you know, kind of help him think a little bit more clearly, which was wonderful because he did become a lot more clear and coherent after he was taking the steroids. But as we're sitting in the hospital room, um, he starts writing down uh, formulas for his business. He's self-employed. He owns his own business. So he starts running down all these formulas for his business because he's telling me in the hospital room that I need to take over running his business. So, okay. Again, not really sure what that means, but all I can see him is frantically scribbling mathematical equations and formulas mm-hmm. on this piece of paper. And, and what's the business again? Tell us what the, he sells or he sold chemicals to the metal processing industry in Detroit. So the business is called North Star Chemical Corporation. He, he had it for 22 years. Um, so he'd been self-employed all that time. And these are chemicals that plating shops use to plate parts for cars. So our customers um, are selling to the automotive companies. So he sells these chemicals to these plating shops. And he's telling me, you need to learn these formulas and you need to take over the business. So I am thinking to myself, I'm not taking over this chemical business. I, I'm not doing that, but I don't know what else, but okay. I don't say no. I just let him do his thing. Right. So he's scheduled for surgery. He's afraid he's not going to come out of surgery. He's afraid that even if he does come out of surgery, he won't be able to speak or whatever. So um, we just talked about so many things in those three to four days before his surgery, just like lots yeah. and lots of information. Was um, it was it mostly information about the business and just like very practical things around the house? Very practical. Or, or did you yeah. guys talk about more personal, deeper level things about him possibly not coming out of it? And Well, he was very afraid of that. Of course, I thought we're at U of M. I mean, these are the best doctors, you know, in the world. So we're, you're going to come out of surgery. It's going to be okay. But what if they, you know, nix something and you can't speak or can't hear, you know, see or whatever. I mean, you're going into somebody's brain. I mean, it's like crazy. So we did talk about a lot of things. Most of it was practical stuff. Um, You know, it just was, well, you need to do this and you need to do that. And it's funny because when he was writing those formulas down, I didn't know what they meant. Of course, Um, I still have them. I still have them in my file cabinet. So it's, it's interesting to me when I go back and look at that page, because I know what he was doing when he was writing it. And now I can see how much it makes more sense to me now that I know. Yeah. In the business now I know, but it was very surreal. You know, he just wanted to make sure I knew as much as I could before he goes right. to surgery. So, right. you know, he, the surgery was fine. He came out of it fine. His speech and everything was fine. Good. Um, so that all went Okay. And they were able to remove about 95% of the tumor, which is a very hugely successful surgery. Yes. 
But the reason glioblastoma is terminal is because it comes back. It just comes back. And you can only go in the brain so many times. So it's not like you can just keep having surgeries. This yeah. was only to buy him time. This is basically a surgery to buy him some time. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, that's how it kind of all went down in a matter of, you know, a few days of we think he's sick with the flu. The next thing I know, he's... He's not going to make so it. You, so you find out, and then it's just a few days later for the surgery. Um, and how old were your kids at that time? Well, when he was diagnosed, they were seven and nine. So basically, they turned eight and 10 that April. So they were, you know, they were eight and 10. And we told them he had a tumor. We told them everything about him, you know, the surgery and going to the hospital and, and all this, you know, everything. We just didn't tell them that he was terminal. So it was very difficult for us as adults to wrap our heads around the fact that death was imminent. I mean, yes. that is some scary stuff right there. Okay. That is like terrifying. Yeah. yeah. So the thought of telling our kids. Right. That right. That information and making them wait potentially a whole year, knowing that it's a very heavy burden to carry, knowing someone is going to die. I mean, it's pretty large. And even with our friends and family, some of them who we would tell this to, um, well, we're praying for you. We have hope. We know he'll, we know he'll get better. We know he'll get better. It's like, but he's not. So we couldn't even, we couldn't even convince some adults that he was really, that this was, you know, he was going to die. And so we just thought we don't know how to tell our kids. We just thought we would wait until it became necessary. Right. So right. we did not tell them immediately. Yeah. Totally understandable. Yeah. Cause then that's going to be, like you said, potentially the next year of their life. Like, is this going to be the day? Is this going to be the day? Exactly. And you how want, do you, do that? you want to enjoy that time with them anyway. And anyway, so I, I totally get that. Um, so then Summer comes around, um, and so that after the surgery, he was, he was feeling a little bit better? He was feeling great. I mean, he had surgery in February and then started radiation, I think, in May. And, um, you know, that was, was pretty intense. So the radiation was very um, intense, and it was six days a week and, um, you know, back and forth to U of M, and that was quite a lot in May. And so, but he was fine. I mean, his, his attitude most of the time was pretty incredibly upbeat and you have to ask yourself how someone can be as positive as he was with a terminal diagnosis. I'm not sure I could have done that, Yeah. but he was, and it wasn't like, um, it was all just an act for us. I really truly believe that he was you know, coming to terms with that. However you do that. I don't even know how you do that. Right. But he did. Somehow he did. Somehow so he took that doctor's words and he did put it in the back of his mind and said, okay, I'm, I'm really going to live every day. I'm going to live every day. So with me taking over the business, he was able to do that. I mean, I basically said, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to take over the business, I have to do all of it. So I'm just going to take over everything. And so yeah. I didn't want him, I didn't want him to do anything. And, and sometimes he would try to talk to a customer or try to put in an order or something and it would just, and he'd kind of mess it up. And so 
I'm like, don't, don't do anything. I'll ask you if I, if I need help or if I have questions, we would go driving around together, but anytime there was an order or any communication with the customers, I'm like, just let me handle this. Okay. So he was able that just freed him up to do whatever else he wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so you guys did spend, you spent a lot of time together that summer. So we did. We yeah. traveled a lot that summer. So we had a, um, a Great Lakes tour. I'm, I'm in Michigan. So we basically went around, you know, all the great, not most of the Great Lakes, but, you know, we climbed the Sleeping Bear Dunes on Lake Michigan Yay. and went to featured <laughs> rocks up in the UP, you know, the, yep. you know, the state and um, fishing in Lake Huron. And we just went all over and it was a, we, I mean, I traveled thousands of miles that summer and um, I was awesome. really, yeah, it was awesome. We had excellent, good quality time together. Not that we didn't do that before. We were always, you know, we took vacations. We were a close family. We did a lot together. But that yeah. summer was really, you know, those memories are definitely etched in our brain for sure. Yeah. I feel like that would make you be more in that moment. Sometimes when you're on vacation, you're just kind of like, go, go, go. We got to do this, this, this. But yeah, with that. Yeah you know, kind of looming, you're like, okay, I'm enjoying this time. This is well, and it was, you know, Mark was because of course he knew he was dying and he wanted his kids to see the UP. He yeah. wanted, he wanted to take them to Tequamanon Falls and pictured rocks and the shipwreck museum and Sault Ste. Marie. He wanted to do that with them. So we did. So, you know, most of that year was whatever Mark wanted, he got yeah. whatever you want you know, I think it's bad karma to tell a dying man no. So whatever you want, we'll do. And yeah. we did. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so you did the traveling and then um, you were telling me you just had all these distractions. You had the work things going on. You had the treatments you were taking care of. You're running the house, taking care of the boy, all of it. But those distractions were actually kind of helping you a little bit because... It was all of it just overwhelming. Well, it's overwhelming. I mean, yeah. So I do better in in pretty much any area of my life when I'm productive, when I'm busy or working, not, you know, busy just to be busy, but working toward a goal or producing something, doing something. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we talked about everything Mark and I did. So there was nothing left unsaid between us. So we were constantly talking about, the situation and what it means and, you know, our children and me running the business when he's gone. And I mean, we talked about everything. Um, Nothing was left unsaid, but it was hard for me to sit with death every day. So I needed a way to move my brain out of that death space somewhere else, anywhere else. So Yeah. yeah, I mean, in between taking him to appointments, taking care of the kids, running the business, um, I decided that it would be a good idea to, um, take on another part-time job. <laughs> so I helped a friend, um, who was working for a company. I did some online, uh, I did some editing for an online training manual manual for a pharmaceutical company. Um, I, and, and then I had a couple of hours, you know, a week just to do nothing but stare at a computer and edit training. I'm like, Oh, did you go to a spa? Did you do? No, you, I worked. (laughs) I worked. I added more onto my plate, but if 
I, cause I couldn't what? stay in that. I couldn't stay in the scary duck place or I would have imploded. I mean, I felt like I would have absolutely imploded if I did not have a way to detach. Yeah. And I can't detach going to a spa cause then I'm thinking about things. So, right. I, so I just was, you know, busier in other ways trying yeah. to stay. It was, um, that was therapeutic for me. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of therapy, therapeutic, did you end up seeing a grief counselor around that time or kind of get therapy introduced at that time or, you know, I never thought about therapy for myself. Um, honestly, I did not even start to see a therapist until almost four years after Mark died. But anyway, that was never something I thought about for me, but I did see a grief counselor to ask her how to tell the boys their dad was going to die. So I went to see someone to help me figure out how do you tell children that their parent is going to die? I don't even know how to do that, right? So I would go talk to this woman and she said, you need to use the words death and dying. You need to tell them the truth and don't beat around the bush or sugarcoat it. And don't say things like, you know, he's sick and he'll never get better. Because children are literal, and if they think that sickness means death, then every time they get a cold or a cough or a sneeze, they're going to think they're going to, you know, that they could die. Yeah. So she's like, don't use sickness, don't use death and dying. So I went to see her probably um, maybe three or four times. And I, it's, like, it's almost like I wanted her just to give me a script. If the kid yeah. says this, then I say this. If they go here, I go there. I just needed to know. Yes. What. Yeah. So she gave me those um, tools on what, you know, to help me figure out what to say. So when did you guys decide to tell the boys? So in December of that year, so he was diagnosed in February of 2013. And in December of that year, um, I knew that it was getting time that we were going to have to say something because um, when, with the brain tumor, it's like some days he would have clear and coherent days and some days he would be almost comatose-like. And, um, it, you know, it's almost like if the, if the um, tumor was shifting in his brain, then one day it'd be clear, one day he wouldn't. It was just a very strange um, time. But he, some days, didn't even remember that he had a brain tumor. He'd, some days he didn't even remember he was um, terminal. So I would have to tell him again the conversations that we'd already had millions of times, I had to tell him again. Oh, wow. Which was awful. And so I thought there's, you know, there's more confusing days than there are clear and coherent days. Um, and we didn't know which mark we were going to get on which day. And, yeah. you know, the boys were confused by his personality changes. Yeah. And his temper would get more aggressive on some days and his confusion. And so the boys would act out against him because they didn't understand why he was doing what he was doing. They just thought he was being mean or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, um, so I told Mark, we need to tell the boys what's going on because I didn't want them to feel guilty about acting out towards their dad without really knowing what was going on. So that was my fear. I didn't want this overwhelming guilt to, you know, engulf them after he died thinking, Oh, I yelled at my dad that yes. day when he yes. says this. You know, so I thought we can't, we can't do that. We have to tell them. So, um, we agreed, Mark agreed. And I basically told Mark, I'll do all the talking. I'm trying to spare him from any, you know, further 
pain and anguish. So I'm like, I went to the grief counselor. I, I can do this. I'm going to talk and, and we'll get this done. So we agreed. So I sat the boys down and told them, you know, basically there's no cure for your dad's tumor. And um, our younger son said, well, will you get better? And Mark said, no. And then my older son said, well, what does that mean? And I tried to use the words that my grief counselor told me to say, and I couldn't say it. They wouldn't come out. No matter how much I practiced, no matter how many times I stood in front of my mirror saying the words over and over again, they did not come out. I couldn't say it. So Mark finally said, it means I'm going to die. He had to say what I couldn't say. Oh my God. That was awful. I mean, that was probably, and anybody who's ever had to tell their kids that, you know, a parent is dead, um, will never forget that moment. No, no. You'll relive that absolute anguish, you know, until the day you die. It was, it was horrible, but I'm glad we finally got to that point. I'm glad that now they, you know, at that point they knew. Yeah. Um, so I could explain. And they understood. Yeah. They understood to the degree of, you know, an eight and 10 year old. I know. Cause still, even when you say the words, still it's unbelievable. It kind of is unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And we still had hope. I mean, everybody always, you know, people have hope. Yeah. There are no, there are no, um, people don't survive glioblastoma, but you always think you're going to be that one or he's going to be that one that's going to finally do it. Yeah. Right. So we had hope, but yeah, so at least now we can tell the kids um, a little bit more about his temper changes and, you know, this is what's going on and they understood a little bit better with that. But so that was at the end of December. And then, um, which is another reason why I'm glad we told them because about two weeks after we told them, he fell down the stairs at our house. So um, he I don't know what he was doing that night, but we had gone to bed and um, mm-hmm. my older son heard a thump and came into my room and said, something happened. I think something happened to dad. And we came downstairs. We didn't see him on the main floor. He was watching TV. And um, I turned the light going down to the basement and he's at the foot of the stairs in the basement. So he mm-hmm. fell down our stairs. And um, I am, again, what am I supposed to do? I don't know what's happening, right? We yeah. call 911. And they come and get him and take him to a trauma center. And we find out that he suffered us um, acute subdural hematoma. So the reason I say I'm glad we told the boys when we did, because two weeks later. Yeah. Two weeks. Two weeks. (sighs) He falls down the stairs. And um, people under normal circumstances sometimes don't survive a fall like that. They don't survive a an acute subdural hematoma and he's got a brain tumor on top of it. And the doctor said, well, um, you know, if, if he gets better, it could take months of rehabilitation. And I'm like, he doesn't have months. Yeah. He he doesn't have months for rehabilitation. There's nothing, nothing we can do at this point. He's, this is like the beginning of the end truly. Yeah. But he, when he fell, so He was paralyzed. Half of his body was paralyzed and he could not talk. He could not eat. He could not swallow. He could not do anything. So he was in the ICU for about a week and um, I would go in every day. And um, I know that death is imminent. I know he's going to die, but I still 
and thinking that, but it wasn't supposed to be this way. It wasn't supposed to be this way, right? Like what, what, I don't know what's happening, but I remember talking to him and he's not awake, but he's in the ICU and I, and he had, was, had a ventilator to breathe. And I would say to him, do not make me, please do not make me unplug this ventilator. Yeah. Come off this ventilator. Do not make me make the decision to take you off the vent. Surprisingly, somehow he got off the ventilator. He started breathing on his own. Yeah. And they moved him from the ICU to the regular floor. But he couldn't talk. He couldn't swallow. He couldn't eat. He was hooked up to machines. He had every tube and feeding tube and everything else going through him. And he was miserable. Yeah. He was miserable. And we weren't able to communicate because he couldn't talk. But... I just didn't want to have to decide what I knew I had to decide. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I didn't. And I just would sit there in the hospital every day thinking to myself, like, um, I just wanted the universe to step in and take care of this. Don't make me make the decision. Right. But he was very uncomfortable and, um, you know, not at all happy. And we had had, um, advanced directives. So we had had a halt before he even got sick, before he was diagnosed. We had, our, we had all of our estate documents done and all of our plans and everything done. And I knew that I was his patient advocate. I knew that it was my job to speak for him when he couldn't speak for himself. Yeah. But I, but I didn't want to, but I didn't want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so he kept getting worse. And, um, you know, I just felt like when I would talk to him, one day we were sitting in the hospital, I was talking to him and he's not talking back because he can't, but he was very agitated and he was pointing his finger at me and it was almost like he was scolding me without speaking to me. But I, I remember crying and I was saying, Mark, I am doing the best that I can. But what he did is he had one side of his body that wasn't paralyzed. He banged his head or his hand on the, on the bed, on the hospital bed. And I said, I'm doing the best I can. And he pointed at me and it was almost like his finger went, you know, back and forth, like no more, no more. That was what he did. So I took that as, okay, I understand what you're saying. I'm telling him I'm doing the best I can. And he's telling me, no, you're not. You're not. Oh God. How do you, how do you do that? I don't even know. So that, so that night I went home, I took out my advanced directive and I read it like 25 times. Yeah. I mean, I just kept zeroing in on the spot that said, where I signed my name, that I was his patient advocate. And I had to, he did not want to be kept alive by artificial means. And he was, he was being kept alive by artificial means. He had feeding tubes and catheters and everything else. So he was anyway, telling you, he was telling me, you know, he was telling you, you had to make the move, but it was his decision. It was. You know, so was. you're just, like you said, you're acting on his behalf. Ma'am. We had had this discussion. So we, our advanced directives were already done. But during this year of him being sick, we'd had that discussion many times. And he would say to me, you know what I want. You know how to do it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, honey, I know. I got you. I got you. Until you get to that point. And I'm like, I don't want to make this decision yeah. to end his life, but it's not really my decision. So I, I had a really good nurse, a very, very good nurse. And um, doctors and nurses will not tell you what to do. They will not tell you, 
that you should, you know, unplug him or not unplug him. Um, but I said, if I take this feeding tube away from him, then it's like I'm starving him. Like he's not getting food. And she said, Kim, you're not starving him. You're starving the tumor. He's not, this is not his life anymore. This is the tumor that you're, that you're feeding. So once she said that to me, I was like, okay, I can maybe wrap my head around that. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So I said, I want to take him home with hospice then. And that was the day that we decided to bring him home. Those are good words. Like that's a good thing to tell somebody. It really was because you do feel like you're, that's why I don't want to make the decision. I'm going to be starving him. Um, he's, you know, I am, I am deciding to take him away from this place where they're keeping him, all of his bodily functions moving. But, but I was his patient advocate. So that was my job. That was my job for him. And I had to do my job. I would like to invite you to get our latest freebie designed just for you. How to get your life back together after loss, a 10-step checklist. After countless hours of research, interviewing hundreds of widows, and through my own experience with grief, I have compiled this list of the 10 steps you need to take to put your life back together after losing a loved one. It's normal to feel overwhelmed and also normal to not know where to start when it comes to picking up the pieces of your shattered world. Here's where you start. You can get this free 10-step checklist at www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. That's www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. Oh, Kim, my God. Yeah. So you get him home. Yeah, so we brought him home and... He, I have a picture and I'll never forget this picture. It's of him and my younger son and we set up everything in the basement. So hospital bed and everything in the basement. And I took, and he's again, paralyzed on one side of his body. But this picture with him and my younger son is, is Mark smiling with the side of his face that wasn't paralyzed because he was home and he knew he was home. Yeah. Now, as soon as he got there, he was awake and then went back to sleep or whatever and really never you know woke up again after that but um he knew he was home he knew we were with him and he was back for about four days um and then he died and his parents were in the house the kids were there I was there we were all with him so he died where he wanted to with the people he wanted around him exactly so I knew I made the right decision to bring him home. A hundred percent. Yeah. And you can feel good about that. I can. I yeah. can feel good about it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was almost, and I told the boys, um, you don't see a peaceful death like his was at home very often. Like, it's almost like, you know, you could have, like, you would have seen this in a movie. It was very peaceful. It wasn't the raspy, you know, gasping for breath at the end kind of thing. It was just a very peaceful passing. And that's why I told them to try to help them understand too. This yeah. was the right thing to do. Yeah. He died with dignity and the people around him that he loved. Yes. So. Oh my God. So how old was Mark? He was 54. 54. Okay. Yep. And how long were you married? We were married for 12 years. We were together for 16. So we dated for about four years together for 12. So, you know, 
I was kind of robbed. I mean, not, not a long, long time. Mm -mm. No. Nope. God. Nope. Um, so, so after that, after Mark, Mark died, what did, what did you do? I mean, I know that's a stupid question, but <laughs> it's not, what did um, you do? You know, like I, it's, it, it, it happened. You had this year of ups and downs and, and then everything ends. So what did you guys do? Well, we traveled a lot. Um, again, if I'm not productive, I'm on the go somewhere. So I just didn't want to be home. I mean, I just didn't want to be there. And we ended up um, taking a trip to Alaska about five months after Mark died. This was one of his bucket list destinations. He never got to go. And I told him before he died, we will take some of your ashes and we will take them to Alaska. So we did. That was awesome. our first trip. And, um, <laughs> you know, I said, we're going to, we're going to do this for dad. So I have a picture in my office above my desk and it's the, um, picture of the lake where we put his ashes oh. when we were in Alaska. So we did a trip and did, it was, was a phenomenal trip, but beautiful. I, we took the ashes and I told the boys, we'll know when we see it. I don't know where we're going to put his ashes. Right. Right. We'll know when we see it. And so when we got to this Lake Ptarmigan, um, we all looked at each other and we said, this is the place. So that's where we put his ashes. So we traveled a lot. I mean, we went to, in the first two years, we went to Alaska, San Francisco, Florida, South Carolina, Washington, <laughs> DC, Wyoming, Yellowstone. Um, in addition to trips around Michigan. <laughs> so we just, we were gone a lot. Yeah. We were gone a lot. I didn't want to, I didn't want to deal with it. I'm, and I'm running the business, but it's, um, you know, I can do that from the road too. So it wasn't like I, which is nice. Yeah. Which is nice. It was flexible enough that we could travel and I could still continue doing what I had to do. Yeah. So we just kind of tried to, um, I did anyway, tried to run away from the grief for a little bit. And I'm sure that helped with the boys too, having that time together. It did. We had some really great trips. We had some amazing trips. Yeah. yeah. But then I was exhausted. So after those two years, I was so flipping tired. I couldn't, and I'm thinking, I don't have it in me to do one more thing. It finally dawned on me that I had to stop. This was way too exhausting. Way too exhausting. It took a few years to get there. It took a few years to get there, but it finally caught up with me. Well, did you have any other widows that you were talking to to help kind of support you along the way? I did actually when, um, so we joined a grief support group for families, um, right after Mark died. So, I mean, I was even checking out these options before he died because I wanted to make sure we had somewhere to go. So I found Sandcastles in the Detroit Metro area. It's a wonderful, wonderful, um, grief support group for families. And they do a lot of, um, they do a lot with the kids grief. So, um, they would separate us. The kids would go off with the volunteers in one room and, you know, the adults would go off in another. So they would have all these activities for the kids to process their grief and drawing and, you know, singing and, and whatever. I mean, all kinds oh my God, of, that's great. it's amazing. It's an amazing, um, it's an amazing place. So the adults would go into a different room. So I did have other widows that I could talk to who had small children like I did. Nice. And we went there for probably two years after he died. Okay. okay. Yeah. It was and really instrumental in our, you know, helping us through. And you said that was in Detroit and that yep. was called Sandcastles? Yes. Okay. Yes. 
excellent resource. I'm still in contact with the um, with the group facilitator that we had there, almost you know almost seven years later. Wow, very cool. That's that is so good to have. Like when they, I, I mean, we I don't have anything really around us like that, and that's that, that is an incredible resource. Yeah, it is. It is. So when did you start Widow Four One One? When did all of that start? Well, the crazy thing is, I actually, because I, I had to go back and check on this, but I bought the domain name, widow411.com, in December of 2014. So the so Mark died in February of 2014. I bought the domain in December of that year. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, somehow I knew that eventually I would start writing about widowhood. I just didn't know when. But that name came in my brain and wouldn't leave. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to buy this domain. It's like 11 bucks a year for a domain or something like yeah, that. Yeah. I'm just going to buy the domain. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it. Um, but I want to just get that done. So I did. And um, it wasn't until the end of 2017, probably more of the beginning of 2018, that I really started to, um, to build up the site. So I had to learn how to set up a WordPress website. I had to learn... Um, all the technical details. If anybody knows about WordPress, um, it's a lot. And it's not easy. No. <laughs> <laughs> the technical stuff still trips me up all the time. I'm always dealing with technical issues. Yeah. But um, so anyway, I learned how to set up the site and um, do my theme and all that stuff and started writing blog posts more towards 2018. So probably about four years after he died was when I really started to um, dig into that more. Well, so my other question was, okay, so when did you start it, but why did you start it? Like, what was that feeling in you of what you wanted to do with it? Well, I don't think I handled a lot of things really great in the beginning. You know, I mean, I, I did try to kind of um, run away, like not literally, but figuratively, right? Like for some reason I thought that I'm, I'm it's just, I'm going to get through this grief. It's not going to debilitate me. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to get through it. Well, you don't. Any, anybody listening knows, right? But that's just not how it works. So I thought, you know, it would help me to help share my story with other people. But I'm learning as much as I'm writing as the people that are reading are learning too. So it yeah. kind of is helping both of us, the reader and me at the same time. Yes. So I just wanted to kind of figure out some of the things that um, I know widows struggle with and try yeah. to help them as I'm helping myself. Yeah. And everything you're learning, you're passing on. and Exactly. Everybody wins. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so tell us about the book then. And the book was a little, um, that's, that's a lot more recent. That was just published in October, you said. That was so recent, but it took me a couple of years to write because it's, uh, so I decided that I needed to write a guide for widows on how to basically deal with the absurd amount of paperwork <laughs> and everything that you have to do after a spouse dies. It's a yeah. lot. We all know this. Yeah. So um, as I was going through all this, and obviously my anxiety level was through the roof as I'm doing all this after Mark died, um, you know, things like closing accounts and contacting credit bureaus and, you know, whatever. I just thought to myself, I need to keep a list of what I'm doing here because um, one day, I don't know when, but someday I can help other widows 
get through this ridiculously overwhelming process. I like to have lists. If you tell me these are the, you know, 20 things you need to do after somebody dies, I'm going to go do them and I'm going to check them off. I'm going to say, okay, this is done. This is done. This is done. Well, there wasn't, there were no real guides, you know, six, seven years ago for me. No. So, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot to do. So I thought I'm, I'm going to write the book I wish I had when I was widowed to help other widows. Well, it's a lot of information. It's a lot. So it really took me a couple of years. I mean, in and out of doing everything else that I'm doing, (laughs) (laughs) let's write a 200 plus page guide for widows and let's do it on top of everything else that's going on. So it took me a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, it's true though. It's like, it's, it's nonstop. It's just list after list of things you have to do. And, uh, you are speaking my language though. Cause I told you, I love a checklist. I mean, you give me a list and I, this is exactly. especially, especially when you have widow brain yes. when you're in the widow fog and you have these really important things that you Very have important. to do and you forget to even eat that day or whatever, you know, you need that in front of you as a guide. You need that. Well, exactly. So I thought, okay, I, and I kept an, enough notes. I mean, I kept enough detail of what I did. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty detail oriented, you know, anyway. And um, I just kept file folders of notes. And so part, you know, one of the harder parts was trying to figure out how to organize the guide myself. You know, how do I, I tried to do it, you know, chronologically as much as possible, but um, it doesn't have to be done, you know, chronologically, but I just wanted to basically give widows a way to organize those tasks into manageable steps. You know, it's just a compilation of where to start, what needs to be done first. I mean, it covers things you probably wouldn't have even thought of because I didn't think about them at the time I'm doing them, but I did do them, but you know, things like, um, how to find a lost life insurance policy online. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you may not have one, but what if you did? What if you found, I mean, there could be out there. There's ways to search that. Yes. Or, you know, what do you do if a debt collector harasses you? How do you, what do you know? What are your rights? Yeah. Well, that's in there too. I mean, these are things that I came across in my research and then I'm, you know, that I'm passing along. So it covers things you wouldn't even think of. But it's also just a practical plan of action. I mean, it helps you prioritize your to-dos, explains how to manage, you know, finances and handle accounts and just deal with all of the pesky details that you don't even know where to start. But all of the, um, all the sections have a checklist at the end. So every section has its own checklist to, you know, do these things. And um, I kind of, describe or discuss how to stay organized and, you know, create a file folder, a binder, and these are the copies of things you need to keep. And these are the copies you need to file and whatever. I mean, it's very um, descriptive and detail oriented. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Um, Now you told me when I was talking to you the other day that, you know, you had this realization after Mark died that you didn't believe that your life was over, you know, you weren't going to let it take over your life. Right. Um, and that you believed that there was a possibility for another great life. Um, so what would you tell a widow about 
or a widow who's kind of stuck in their grief on how to move forward or any advice that you could give? Well, this is what I was talking about before with the things that I tried and failed to do after Mark died. But I would tell a new widow that grief isn't a problem that needs to be fixed. It's just a feeling that needs to be felt. I didn't want to feel it. So I ran away from it for two years and traveled all over the country, right? Like I didn't want to deal with it. Um, So I would definitely tell a new widow now, it's not a problem that needs to be fixed. There's no fix. There's, you know, one of the first blog posts I wrote three years ago was the truth about fixing grief that you shouldn't ignore. And it basically talks about that. It's not um, something that we need to avoid. It's something we actually need to embrace because grief is love, love with no place else to go. Right. I mean, that's right. You've probably seen all the quotes and all the, you know, all the things. I mean, I used to think I could bypass it. I did. I thought I could bypass it if I kept doing something other than feeling sad, but feeling sad is part of our lives. I mean, we just can't avoid feeling sad. It's not good or bad. It just is. We need to feel everything, you know, all of it. And so I think that the more I tried to um, avoid those heavy, uncomfortable feelings, the heavier and more uncomfortable they became. So, um, you know, grief doesn't allow detours. You have to go right through the muck. You got to (laughs) keep moving right through the muck. And, and, you know, if you're feeling stuck in grief, it might mean that you need to practice grieving more. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit how you met, um, Tom who came into your life. Um, how did that happen? Yeah. So I've been seeing someone for, um, going on five years now and about two years after Mark's death. Um, I just started thinking that maybe I would consider dating. I mean, I think all of, you know, us widows kind of go, I might think about maybe considering the possibility that it could <laughs> potentially happen, right? Like we don't want to say, I'm going to date, bring it on. We just kind of say, well, maybe I'll think about maybe. it. Yeah. Take yeah. my toe in and see what happens, right? So yeah. <laughs> being, being the practical person that I am, all I really wanted to do was get over that hump of the first date after the death. That's really all I wanted to do because that, that, was, that seemed insurmountable to me. Like that was a hurdle to me. Yeah. So I just wanted to jump the hurdle. I didn't care who it was. Like, let me just get over that hurdle and then I'll be good. And then we can take whatever else comes after that. So anyway, the, the nurse that I was telling you about, my neighbor, who I called after Mark's diagnosis, um, I was joking with her one day, basically saying, you should introduce me to a doctor at one of the hospitals where you work. And uh, she said, no, I don't want to introduce you to a doctor. I want you to meet my, my friend, Tom. So her husband and Tom work together. So she already had this in the back of her mind for a long time. A long time. So she never said anything to me because she didn't know when I was going to be ready, you know? Right. So yeah. when I brought it up, half joking, half serious, um, she said, no, I have somebody I want you to meet. And then I was like, no, 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 no. Just kidding. Not serious. Just kidding. Don't need to go any further with this. But she was insistent, but not in a bad way. So the next few weeks, she would just come up to me again and say, um, so did you think more about maybe meeting Tom and, you know, so finally I'm like, fine, we can do this. Just, you know, have him call me, whatever, have him call me. So <laughs> very long story short, Tom called, we went out on a date and we're together almost five years later. <laughs> so my first date after the death wasn't just a hurdle that I overcame. It was, it's still here. 
Yeah. <laughs> so we have, I mean, we're, you know, we're talking about getting married and building a house together and we definitely have a future together. So um, that's, you know, wow. Yeah. That's a whole other thing, but um, <laughs> I actually wrote about, so I have a story in um, chicken soup for the soul called the mirror, the book volume called the miracle of love is a story that I wrote about meeting Tom and my relationship with him and how we, or I, think that Mark was actually kind of instrumental also oh, in yeah. um, kind of oh, putting yeah. him on my path. For sure. Yeah. So oh, there was a lot of coincidences when I first met Tom, a lot of similarities between him and Mark, a lot. And yeah. so after a while, it just dawned on me that maybe this wasn't, um, maybe there was some divine intervention that happened. In it. But anyway, I wrote about that in the Chicken Soup for the Soul story. So. Okay. I'll put a link to that in the show yeah. notes so everybody yeah. can go and read that because that yeah. would be fun. <laughs> and the other day we were talking about um, something I had never heard of before. And I really want to like touch on this a little bit. <laughs> but, so you were telling me something called angel numbers. And what are they? Like, what is that? Well, yeah, like this could be a whole other podcast. I mean, I know I, I need to have I, you come back. <laughs> I know I go down this rabbit hole. It's, it's whatever. I mean, it's, you know, to me, I wanted, I wanted the signs. I wanted a sign, you know, from my husband and we talked to, you know, the other day and um, my younger son would see hearts all the time. And right after Mark passed away, right after he died, Christopher, my younger son would see hearts a lot. And it just became, again, um, it just couldn't be coincidental that we saw all these hearts when we did in certain times in certain places. But I never saw them until Christopher pointed it out to me, usually. So I thought, well, where's my sign? What are my signs? You know, you can, you can see cardinals, you can see feathers or dimes, or there's all these other ideas about what your signs are. But I started seeing recurring number patterns. And in the beginning, it was like, oh, that's interesting. But it just happened just so many times more and more and more and more that I thought, well, this must be, this must be something. Know, yeah. Something. So the angel numbers are basically just, um, repeated number patterns that you see more often than could be considered coincidence. And num and each of the numbers has, has a meaning. So it depends on what you see. Then all I do is like Google the number combo and just read what I can read on it. And some people, of course they, you know, poo poo that and say, well, that's not real. And, you know, you're, you're just making it up or whatever. And I think to myself, even if it isn't, it still brings me peace and comfort. Yeah. Right. So yeah. even if nobody else believes it, that's okay. Because I do, but I started seeing 11, 11 on the clock, 11, 11 all the time. Now there are, there is 60 seconds during the day that I could possibly see this on the clock. Right. Cause I'm asleep at 11, 11 at night. So it's during the day, there's only, how do I, how do, how do I happen to look at the clock at, in, in that 60 second window Yeah, as many times as I do, but it's not even the clock. I could see it on customer receipts or I could see it on invoices. I would, I would see number patterns and I would add them up and it would be 1111. Oh my God. And I was like, this is just weird. Like, it's just not right. So I just started paying more attention to it. And Part of what I know now is that these messages are um, just validating my beliefs. You yeah. know, whatever I'm thinking or feeling, um, <clears throat> it's just a reminder from my guardian angels to trust my inner wisdom or my intuition, which I question a lot. <laughs> and 
normally when I'm questioning it is when I will get one of these number patterns. Yes. yes. It's when it, you know, if I'm, um, you know, I might see the number 333 and that means I need to bring more balance into my life. Or I might see 444 and that's, you know, the challenge you think is insurmountable isn't. And, um, you know, I just go, okay, um, that's, I'm, I'm thinking about something and I see a number pattern. So that's what happens with me. And one, one day i had had an argument with my older son and um, very upset. And I was on my phone and the temperature, this was in the summer. So the temperature at the time was 88 degrees. And then my phone was at 88%. So I thought, <laughs> well, that's weird, right? 88, 88. Well, then the next few days it happened again. And it happened two more times, like in the next few days. So I had to go look up what 88 means. Like what's yeah. the game? And so what I found was, um, if you've been having unstable relationships in the past, no matter how hard you try, the angels are telling you this time that a stable relationship is coming your way. Oh my gosh. Oh, so now whenever I see these number patterns, I just say, thank you, angels. Thank you. Got it. Message received. Got it. We just need to look and pay attention. We kind of need to pay attention. Yeah. I need to pay attention. And I just had something on Instagram. I put it out yesterday. I think it was that said, um, when you ask the universe to send you signs, believe what shows up. Yeah. So you don't always know, you know, if you say, I want, you know, I want this sign. You may not get that sign. You may get something else, but these number patterns, once you start seeing them, then your brain goes, Oh, let's find more. Let's find more. Yeah. And you do. So I always say, thank you, angels. So my kids are always horrified when I'm like, thank you, angels. Oh God, there goes mom again, talking to the angels. <laughs> yes, I do. I thank my angels. They are communicating with me. I had never heard of this before. I love it. I'm going to, I'm going to do some more research on it and look up a bunch of things because I know I get those signs too. And yes, you probably are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love it. Um, so I wanted to end with some questions for you. Okay. Um, I have a little list of questions that we can go over. Um, I've got, okay. So first one is something that we kind of touched on the other day that you brought up and I was like, that is such an interesting question. So do you think it's better to know when you're going to die or to have it happen suddenly? Just in your opinion. Yeah. And I just don't think there's an answer for this. I mean, I, I really don't. I mean, as much as people thought I was somehow lucky that I had time to prepare, um, there's simply no way to prepare for death. There's, there's no way. So I would not wish the year that, that Mark and I had of his countdown to death on anyone. Yeah. On anyone. Um, and on the flip side, you kiss your husband goodbye in the morning. He doesn't come home at night because he got hit by a car. I mean, it's like, I don't think there's a good answer for it. Death is just excruciating and horrible all the way around. So I don't yeah. know that there's, um, I don't think there's a better way either there's, way. Yeah. Neither. No. <laughs> Neither. Number two, um, who has influenced your life the most since becoming a widow? You know, I guess I'd have to say other widows. I mean, it's really like, it never ceases to amaze me how widows can put the puzzle pieces of a broken existence back together again. Oh, you know, under some insurmountable odds sometimes. 
Yeah. You know, you hear lots of stories and sometimes I hear other people's stories and go, Oh my God, how did she do it? Yeah. Right. And then some people look at me and say, how did you do it? Right. You yeah. just, I mean, it's, it's, you know, you're navigating horrendous grief and loss obstacles and you still come out on the other side. So, yeah. you know, I think, um, I think that's influenced me more. It's just other, other widows and their stories that are amazing. Yeah. Agreed. Oh my gosh. That's so true. Um, okay. Number three, what is your biggest passion? What's get, what gets you fired up about life? Well, I love to write and, um, I like to take an idea and try to describe it in a universal sense so that everyone can feel what I'm saying. That's like not easy to do. And so I spend a lot of time as I'm writing things, trying to, you know, get the right words. And um, yeah. my thesaurus is my, you know, best friend, basically. <laughs> like the tab that's open on my computer all day, every day. Um, but I like to write. I just like to take a sentence or a word and build a story around it. I mean, I've always loved words and I've always liked to write. I just never knew what I was going to write about specifically. And then, hi, I'm a widow. So and this happens. And, and this oh happens. my God, I'm telling you guys, you have to go read her blog. She's so good. You are so good. <laughs> Oh, you're so nice. Thank you. I just, um, that's what I like to do. I mean, that's what I'm, that's what gets me fired up. Um, number four, uh, what do you want to be most known for in your lifetime? <laughs> this is like, oh my gosh, this question. Um, it's such a good question. I would have to say that I want to be known as someone who reveals to others what is possible. That's what I want. Love that answer. <laughs> That's what I want to do. Whenever I hear someone say, well, I can never do that. I'm like, oh my God, yes. Yes, you can do that. You know, this I can't, I would never um, drives me crazy. But you just, like we said before, you have to believe it first. You have to believe that you can do it. There's literally no way to accomplish anything in this life, anything, if you don't believe first that you can do it. So I want to show others the possibilities that exist in their lives by reminding them that if I can do it, they can too. Yes. Oh, beautiful answer. I love it. I love it. <laughs> All right. My last question is um, just something about the holidays are coming up. A lot of people are dreading this because this might be their first holiday without their husband. Yeah. So um, yeah. it, what advice would you give them for just getting through the holiday season? I would say, do what you want that brings you peace, okay? I mean, I tried to make everything the exact same that first year after Mark died, okay? I did everything, we stayed home, I put up decorations, everything, the mantle, everything looked exactly like it did. The only thing that missing, obviously, was their father, you know, Mark was missing. But I tried to do everything else the exact same way, and I hated every single minute of it. Oh, yeah. I hated it. Yeah. And I thought, th I'm thinking I'm doing something for everybody else, but I'm not honoring what I needed to do for me. And I think we get stuck in that a lot with, you know, when we have kids and extended family. And, you know, Mark was an only child, so his parents are, are my family. I mean, they're my, they're still in our lives. I mean, they're, we're very close. And so I wanted to do, the same thing we always did for everybody else's sake, but almost had a nervous breakdown in the process. So yeah. my advice would be do what you need to do for yourself 
right that brings you peace and you don't have to have um you don't have to do what everybody else thinks you should do and you don't have to have that the, the thought that this is my this is going to be my holiday forever you know no. maybe just that first year you take a time out exactly. <laughs> and the next year you might feel completely different and you know well, that's it that's it i mean the first year we stayed home the, the next year we left i'm like i do not mm-hmm. want to be here for christmas i don't and now mm-hmm. that my kids are older um i don't do as much decorating as i used to do because nobody helps me anyway and i am quite frankly done with dragging everything out by myself and putting everything up and taking it down by myself and they maybe notice it maybe don't i don't know so you know, after a while, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. So I decided to just, um, I still do, you know, other family ritual stuff with them. But yeah, oh, I think we get way too caught up in what we're supposed to do, according right. to other people. Right. And I'm saying don't get caught up in that. Do what you want to do. Yeah. That brings you peace. Exactly. Yeah. That's great advice. Oh, well, Kim, I can't thank you enough for being here today and talking to us. And um, I just wanted to end with like, you know, we, we kind of talked about this the other day, but you starting your blog was a win-win because, you know, you're helping others, you're providing this information, but you're also helping yourself. But really and truly what you write is a gift. I just want to tell you that it is such a gift and I hope that you know that. Thank you. I do appreciate that feedback. Sometimes I think I'm writing in a vacuum and nobody out there reading it. So I do, I do really appreciate that. Thank you. You are helping so many people. You're helping so many people with the blog and with your book and just with the writing in general. And, um, I just wanted to say thank you. So, um, your readers appreciate your words. We do. I'm a reader. I love it. So tell everyone again, where we can find the blog, the book and all of it. Okay, so the blog is, um, the website is www.widow411.com. And on the site is a link on the top menu bar to the shop page. So you can find the Ultimate Survival Guide for Widows through the shop link. Or on the sidebar of the website, there's also a link to the guide right there on the side. Um, So if you go to the shop, then there's a couple of other products that that are listed under there too. And I'm working on other products as we speak. So there is more coming for Widow 411 subscribers and readers, because I think there's a lot more, a couple more guides up my sleeve, things that I can help widows with um, after the first few years. The ultimate survival guide for widows is more kind of in the first one to two years. Yeah. But then I get a lot of feedback of things um, after that, like how to do. So I've got some other ideas in the works for that. Awesome. Good things coming. Yay. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And again, you're doing an awesome job with this podcast and bringing all these stories to light is so important for other widows to hear these. I appreciate what you do too. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Okay. I just love her. Here are the takeaways from Kim. They went to see a doctor in February of 2013, and the doctor sat down and told them, Mark, you have a glioblastoma brain tumor. You have 12 to 15 months to live, and you need to treat each day going forward as a gift. Those were his words to them. Number two, Mark was diagnosed with terminal cancer in February. They spent the whole summer traveling and having fun together, 
It was the summer of whatever Mark wanted he got, and they have the best memories of that summer. Number three, Kim had to make the tough decision as Mark's advocate to take him off the feeding tubes and bring him home. Number four, after Mark died, Kim was on the go. That was her way of coping. So she traveled nonstop with her boys, including spreading his ashes at a lake in Alaska. Number five, Kim found Sandcastles. It's a grief support group for families in Detroit, and it was instrumental in helping her grief. Number six, she started Widow 411, that's her blog, about four years after Mark died. Number seven, she decided she wanted to write a book. It's a guide for widows to help with the absurd amount of paperwork that we have to deal with after a spouse dies. Her book is called The Ultimate Survival Guide for Widows, and it's full of resources and checklists. Number eight, she started thinking about dating about two years after Mark passed. Her neighbor set her up with a man named Tom. They went out on one date and they hit it off and they've now been together for five years. Number nine, Kim wrote a story for Chicken Soup for the Soul, The Miracle of Love, and it's her story about meeting Tom. And I'll be sure and put the link to that in the, um, in the show notes so we can go and check that out. Number 10, Kim told me all about angel numbers, which is something I had never heard of before, but I think it's the coolest thing. And angel numbers are recurring number patterns that have meanings, like 333, or she kept seeing 1111 on the clock. So start paying attention and see if you notice some of these angel numbers appearing for you. And be sure and check out all the places you can find Kim. Go to widow411.com. And you can find the link to her book on widow411.com. That's the ultimate survival guide for widows. And then I wanted to make another announcement today because I mentioned a couple of weeks ago about the messages that I get from some other widows and the messages lately that are about dreading the holidays. And they are feeling extremely anxious about facing family or friends and getting those pity looks or the pity invitations to parties. And then I'm getting those messages from some of you guys that tell me that you're going to be alone for the holidays. And uh, my heart is breaking. You guys, nobody should be alone during the holidays. So I was inspired to start a new club this year. I'm calling it club with air quotes that you can't see me doing right now. I'm calling it the Widow's Holiday Survival Club 2020, because that's just the type of year this is, right? So I'm starting this club. It's going to start Sunday, November 22nd, 2020, and go through January 1st, 2021. It's 40 days long, and that's the Sunday before Thanksgiving when it starts. So my plan for this club is to create a place where widows can come and have a space to be and to connect and share any thoughts or anything that's going through your head right now. Um, The club is going to start on that Sunday with a Zoom workshop on how to get through the holidays. Like these questions come up, like, do we put his stocking up? Or what's a different tradition we can maybe start this year? And we'll have regular Zoom meetups, coffee or happy hour 
depending on what you guys want or both, a private Facebook group for the club and some activities. Anyway, I just wanted to offer this up for anyone who wants to be a part of it. I think we can make it maybe fun even. Anyway, if you're interested, you can find all of the information on the website at www.widow180.com forward slash holidays. That's www.widow180.com forward slash holidays. And email me if you have any questions about it. It's jen at 180.com at widow180.com or go to the Facebook group at Widow 180 Community to get the information. Thanks for listening, you guys, and I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to Widow 180, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you're seeking daily inspiration and guidance, you can follow me on Facebook at Widow 180, the community, on YouTube at Widow 180, the channel, and on Instagram at Widow 180. If you're interested in more grief and widowhood resources, including our latest freebie, How to Get Your Life Back Together After Loss, a 10-step checklist, head over to www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. That's www.widow180.com forward slash freebie.